Hello and welcome to the Intersection of Things, a podcast which talks about what's going on with technology in society right now. I am Marianella Ramos Capello. And I'm Ruth Kustik Deal. And what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about parenting and technology. Dun, dun, dun. Even though we are not parents, but we have had parents, and parenting is a potential future, maybe. Yeah, and, and to quote uh, my friend Jess, we've had to parent parents. <laughs> <laughs> Especially uh, having to do with technology. So yeah, we're going to be talking about the intersection of parenthood and technology, and why is this a thing. What's up with this, Ruth? Yeah, I mean, I started thinking about doing an episode on this because, you know, I've got a few friends who are having babies right now or have just had kids recently and like listening to the conversations they're having about the challenges that they're coming up against, I was just like, wow, there's so much stuff going on. And then, you know, the things in the news that you see about internet-connected children's toys and parents tracking things. So yeah, I thought, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Yeah, one of the things that really started me thinking about this was one of my friends saying that their plan was to not put any photos of their baby online and to not to not allow it to happen, like not allow any friends or family to do the same. And I checked in with them recently. I was like, how's that going, you know? It's been over a year and they're like, no, didn't work. They couldn't, they couldn't stop it. They were like, you know, it's one thing to try and tell people, but so many people will just be like, oh, I'll just take a cute picture and put it on my Instagram. And he's just like, don't even have you as a friend on Instagram. There's nothing I can do. Now you've just Instagrammed my baby. And now the company owns it and they could put that baby in an advert theoretically because they own the rights to the images that you put on Instagram. And what was the rationale of this person for not taking pictures of the kid because they want their child to not be on a database since they're a baby you know not have facebook create facial recognition software that tracks their child's face to not have the idea that when they grow up there is a record of them through their whole childhood that they didn't consent to that they didn't have control over and, you know you reach that point of adulthood and then you realize that distant friends of your parents or strangers own images of you and mm. it feels like there's no control over that at all right well one thing that's important is like i mean if technology has gotten into every single part of our lives it definitely has affected parenthood and uh family dynamics in some way and I'm wondering if for people who are abstaining from posting pictures what is like the social cost of that can you even avoid putting pictures of you and your kids online like what's the yeah I think they're finding that you just can't because it's literally become so normalized to put photos of everything on the internet and I think what's really weird is what he was saying about like strangers would just do it people well not strangers but like mere acquaintances think it's okay and that we don't have like a norm of asking permission which i think is really weird because personally i do always ask permission but i noticed this actually this week i was at an event for work and i said oh, i want to take pictures of this event is everyone okay with me taking pictures and everyone said yeah that's fine but i'd already seen people taking pictures just at the event other people who were there and I was like for me I never feel comfortable taking anyone's picture without having asked but clearly other people are just cool with doing that but it's a norm that I find really weird mm. yeah like what about I you know. do you, I mean if we could like imagine the situation because it was different for us growing up but like if you had found that there were just like tons of pictures of like your entire childhood put up by aunts and uncles and grandparents or whatever 
how do you think you'd feel about it? I mean, it is really, really hard to think of that hypothetical because I, like you just mentioned, we did not grow up with that. So I think right now the expectation is that there's pictures of us everywhere, right? Like there was a period, um, I don't know, in my early 20s, I guess, where everybody was posting to Facebook and everybody was being tagged. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, someone uploaded 50 pictures of this party. So it's like the expectation is that the materials out there for you and I don't I did not grow up with that and I don't know what what someone who grew up in that environment would feel like and I think it is hard for me to project that of course I would not like it of course I would not like to find random pictures of me although I would admit I would be very curious to be like oh okay I look like that (laughs) because I mean, not to not to get too philosophical here again, but like, it's fascinating what some people find interesting about you. And most albums and photo albums and stuff are like curated by your parents. So it's like, oh, you 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 kept this thing when I was uh, I was looking a little bit queer. Hmm. Okay, awesome. So I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, it is a little weird because on the other hand, I don't really have many baby pictures at all. Like, I've got like four. My parents just didn't take a lot of pictures. (laughs) So in some ways, I feel like the few pictures that I have are really precious and sometimes think like, oh, it'd be nice if they'd taken more than just like, you know, on my birthday or occasional special occasions. But I like that those are in family albums and not just everywhere on the internet. I'm really interested too, and we will not go into depth on this, but like I'm really interested in how social media is becoming and has become part of the family dynamics. I mean, it's almost like, I don't know if you remember when the, I don't know, back in our days, (laughs) back in my days, when the internet was like a no parents zone for me. And all of a sudden, when I started, you know, a few years back, getting Facebook requests by uncles and cousins that I rarely talk to. And like eventually, you know, parents, I was like, you know what, what the fuck? And to give them permission or to give them access to that was a very weird decision. I mean, I, I obviously said no, but um, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm just very interested in how like social media all of a sudden it is a mechanism for that family cohesion, right? And and the expectation that, or like the assumption that you can say yes or no, it is not that simple because, you know, will the aunt feel or the uncle feel offended if you say, nope, I do not want you in my private Facebook circles. I don't know. But that's... Uh... Yeah, I actually, yeah, had the same thing and also just said no. I mean, I think I told my parents I am not going to say yes to you being Facebook friends with me. And I was just really explicit. I was like, to me, it's a space for my friends. And, you know, it changes things if I think all of my relatives are on there too. Um, But I also am just weirdly blunt sometimes. But yeah, it actually reminds me, I was reading some research just this week from Professor Sonia Livingston um, at LSE in London. And she's done a whole bunch of research around how like teenagers and parents are using mobile phones. And one thing that I thought was really interesting about that research is that it said that teens and parents are using their phones about the same amount. So any idea that like the young generation use their phones all the time, it's basically saying they're using their phones the normal amount, like the same amount that everyone uses their phones. It's not that we can go like, oh, look over there, they're so like, they're addicted. Actually, it was this whole thing that teens think that their parents are addicted, which is interesting. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating. Okay, so there's this thing of, you know, platforms, social platforms, 
photos consent but the issue of parenthood and technology intersects in other areas and this is when it starts getting like the extra creepy and i'm talking about the tracking software let's now let's put actually parenting in terms of raising a kid yeah so you're raising a kid you have these tools what are the issues here i think that like so many parents are being encouraged to do behavior that i essentially think is abuse like strong statement there (laughs) explain (laughs) like Okay, so we might have mentioned before in some of our episodes, and there are so many different softwares out now that you can use to track people. And the software out there that's advertised to abusers to allow them to put secret trackers on their partner's phones and see where they are, or to listen into their calls, and that kind of thing. That exact same software is advertised to parents to track their children. And in fact, I wanted to see how easy it was to find this stuff. And not only is it advertised on websites that literally market themselves to abusers, like that say, like, you should check on what your spouse is doing, women are more likely to cheat, like, all of that crap. But, like, which is not true. Yeah. They're just as likely, if not less. Anyways, go on. Yeah. Parents.com offered me the 10 best apps to track my kids. And I went through and looked at all of these different products and there were things like, so one says you can set a perimeter that your child is allowed to play in and will play in a loud siren if they step beyond the perimeter. I'm just like, what? Like, like a prisoner, like an ankle tracker. What are you doing? What the fuck? It reminds me a lot of that episode. I don't know if some of you listeners have uh, probably, you've probably heard of this, the Black Mirror episode where like there was a kid and her mom basically puts like an implant on her to be able to not only monitor where she is. I mean, this is all done under the premise of safety, right? I think at the, when she was a kid, like a very young child, she got lost and then the mom got very panicky about it. So, you know, let's let's put a, this tracking device in her brain, basically. Um, and it's funny because the whole device, like the way the mom controls it, looks like an iPad. So I just call it like the iPad episode. Um, the premise was that, right? It's like, oh, your kid can get lost at any time. There was also in that same episode a scene where like a dog was very scary for the kid. So the mom could actually block what the girl could see. Like the dog would be blurry and the sound would be like muted sort of. So the kid would not have a panic attack. The premise was always like, it's for the safety of your kid. It obviously being a Black Mirror episode, spoilers, all just breaks loose particularly because of, well, a few issues. The kid didn't know she was being tracked. So come the teenage years, there's uh, that element of trust of like, holy shit, you've been monitoring this forever uh, and you didn't tell me. And the second thing is, well, if you have a mediated experience of reality, how are you going to learn to cope, right? If, If the dog is always barking at you and your mama is like, muting it how are you going to learn to to cope and know that what you need to do to face reality so it it were very interesting questions there um surrounding well my main two takeaways were like breach of trust and consent and this mediated element of how you grow up yeah it's so weird because if adults do that to each other it's abuse you know it's illegal but somehow you do the same behavior that would be illegal to do to another adult to a child And it's seen as some form of parenting. And I'm just like, no way. You are building a relationship based upon lies. If you are secretly tracking your child. And if you are openly tracking your child, then you're probably harming their mental health. Because are they going to be able to feel free to act if they can't do things without knowing that you're watching them? 
And also, I was reading this definition of privacy from um, Carly Nist. She's a really good researcher. And she wrote a piece on child rights online. And she talked about decisional privacy. And she said decisional privacy is about being able to act freely. And I just think that is exactly what these kind of things are changing. It's like, you, even if you're told about it, it's a form of surveillance that impacts how you act. It doesn't necessarily matter if you're told or not. You're still changing and influencing the freedom to make choices in your life. Mm. This podcast episode is brought to you by Foucault. <laughs> it is very panopticon Yeah, yeah. What did I say? Oh, yeah. I was thinking about this thing about, like, that elf on the shelf. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. I don't know if you've heard about this, but... It's this weird thing. I I don't even understand. You put some kind of elf on a shelf, like it sounds, during Christmas time, and you say that like you have to be nice or you don't get presents from Santa. And the elf is like Santa's reporter who like tells on the kids to Santa like, oh, they misbehaved, and they're really like, I'm just gonna leave this elf here, and the elf is watching you. And, like, there's research on how this, like, seriously damages children and they have, like, nightmares about it and they can't sleep and they become, like, really afraid of the elf. And it's just like, look, if just doing that for the lead up to Christmas, like, mm. the advent panopticon fucks you up, how do you think that is going to be if you do that for someone's entire childhood? Well, and it's also, I mean, it is normalizing surveillance, right? It's just like this link of behaving in a certain way for two reasons. First, because you're going to get a reward. Second, because if you don't, you're going to get punished, but someone's watching and will always know. Rather than instilling the values of just like behave properly because it's good for you or whatever i mean uh, this sounds exactly like the kind of thing that it was like parents will roll their eyes at me and be like what the fuck do you know you're not a parent but i don't know i think there's there's uh, for me the concern of normalizing surveillance it is it is should not be taken lightly and i think a couple of years ago if not last year i think this was true because i saw the picture but the internet you know it's really good for at fake things they were selling a toy that was like elf on a, sh a shelf, but it was like a surveillance camera. It was one of those mock ones. Oh my remember. god, what? If we find it, oh. if we find it, we'll put it on the footnotes, people. But yeah, it was literally, it was like a, like a mock, you know, CTV or C CCTV camera. And uh, yeah, and it, it's, uh, it was like Christmassy, but... Um, uh. A, yeah, Christmas, a... a Christmas surveillance camera. Yeah. Oh my God, what are the parents thinking? So, so yeah. And another tiny little philosophical segue. Zoom. This is not just us being like, technology is terrible. I mean, like you mentioned, the elf on the shelf happened before tracking devices. And before that, there was like the God that sees it all. So I think it's just a continuation of that same like self-vigilance, surveillance. Wow. But the interesting part here is that's different because God does not keep a database that I know of because non-existent reasons. And the elf is just a mental game. But these devices are actually tracking you, are actually logging things and are actually getting your data, selling it, uh, mishandling it, etc. So this is, I think, if you were to say, okay, what's different with technology? Because we've always had surveillance. I would say that, that God and, and other traditions are more like imaginary. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> bold statement here. But this is very different. All of a sudden, Apple does own something. And, yeah, uh, so I think like the side of your technology company also has this data was not even the thing that I had been like most worried about. So I'd be more worried about like 
the way it was to grow up and always be tracked. But that just seems like an extra dose of trouble to add into the mix. But yeah, I talked to my parents about this at one point. It was like in a newspaper while we were hanging out and I was just like, oh, look at this awful thing, like these tracking watches that people were putting on their toddlers. And then my parents were like, well, what about baby monitors? Like surely when you're younger, they were like, what is the right age in which it is okay to track what your kid is doing? Baby monitors as in like those those cameras that people put in the kids' yeah, yeah. room? Or you have ones that just listen so that you can hear if they're crying and then you can go upstairs and you know check on them it's so fucking scary (laughs) do you think so I don't feel like baby monitors are that bad like just for Uh, the just the audio ones that let you know if the baby's crying or not it's I mean those are just like like a little miniature radio yeah true I mean just put a microphone on your kid's stuff and plug it to a speaker downstairs or whatever (laughs) you don't need the internet for that yeah, I think some of the basic ones are literally that, and then the more advanced ones start being like internet connected and tell you all sorts of extra data. It's just like taking a basic device that is like a, a little radio thing that transmits from upstairs to downstairs, and then like adding in more and more features. It really feeds, I think, on parental paranoia, because I can understand yeah. it when you think about, you know, like the fear of like how vulnerable a baby is, right? That you don't want to have the thing, you walk away, and then they get sick or something i really feel like it's understandable and then at each level it's that fear of like okay toddlers run away all the time you know if you're playing in the park and you lose sight for a second and everything is just this like think of the children this like paranoia that that Mm. i feel like you can just be tapped into so quickly well there's a few things about this first baby monitors because they're so popular they're made by a bunch of different people and it is known that hackers love hacking into those. Um, We'll put some stories in the footnotes, but I think, I mean, the latest one that I found was this year and like someone uh, broke into, well, the baby monitor and was like turning the camera to see around. And I think at some point, whoever hacked into this thing was like talking to the baby and like baby wake up and doing like terrible things. And then when the father went and, to check on this because there were noises coming out of it when the father went to check on this the hacker started shouting obscenities at him like again it, it, this and this is not like the one case that happened like it is well known that the security the everything that has to do with uh keeping that device safe from hackers it's 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 not it's not there it's not a common practice so that's one thing also the whole internet of things issue of um hackers kind of using these devices to like do distributed denial of service attacks just because they're so easy to hack so yeah the hacking thing is one thing the second thing though and this is different from like monitors in houses like the thing that you're saying about the tracking watches or like wristbands or whatever Mm. it's like i'm wondering if it's if it's something that's actually useful like we've talked a lot about public space here and how it's basically it's always under surveillance Especially if you live in a big city, it's always, basically, you're observed at all times, which is terrible. But you would think that, you know, if if you're being watched all the time, just to add an extra layer of you tracking your kid, number one, it's weird for me. Just like, okay, so are you paranoid that someone's going to steal your baby? There's cameras everywhere. But the number two thing is, is it actually useful? Because I'm assuming anybody who would kidnap a kid would be aware of these devices and they're so easy to just take off. So I'm just like, 
are we just actually placing i don't know all of this trust in this technology and is there are there any case studies where this has been useful like it just doesn't seem yeah i mean the thing with case studies is like once there's one that proves it is useful in a crime, then they always end up saying, like, that justifies it. Like, I'm thinking about Alexa, and this really weird case about how Alexa was present for a murder. So they got the the recording from what happened in that time period to hear, you know, to hear the sounds of a murder being committed, basically. And it's just yeah. like, once you do that... And it's used to solve a crime. What scares me is the police then saying, well, we should be able to have access to Alexa, right? That's the, we should be able to be in your house, right? The moment something seems like it's being used in a helpful way that has negative impacts on basically our human rights, we give up a lot of stuff for it because... Right, it justifies. Yeah, it justifies it. Hmm. Well, that's that's that with case studies. Uh, <laughs> sounds, sounds very, like, spectacle-like. I mean, that's the thing, is, like, we have to have real research, not just, like, one study, one example that justifies everything. So, you yeah. know, just shout out to research there. That's my point. Yeah, and, and again, parents, uh, um, if you're listening to this, not my parents, please don't... Um, <laughs> Parents, if you're listening to this, and uh, let us know what you think. Like, is this useful? Is this more like a safety thing for you? Is this more like a reassurance thing? Like, do you talk to your kids about what's in their wrist? Do you do the thing that they used to do with us millennials, which is people under 40 now? Which is, uh, I don't know your roots, but like, when I was very little, I had to learn like my address and my phone number. And like, it was a thing that was drilled into my head. So if I ever got lost, at yeah. least, that's the one thing. Like, everybody could take labels off clothing and things like that that have your info. But that the, was the one thing that nobody, nobody could take away. And I chose who to tell this information to, which was really cool. Like, now I'm just like, okay, sounds like a no-brainer. But I'm like, nowadays, a lot of people don't even know their own phone number, you know? I used to know so many phone numbers. Now I'm like, I, I sound so old. But like, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, holy crap. Now if I'm lost or if my phone dies and I need to call a friend, who are you going to call? Yeah. <laughs> it's so strange. So, um, yeah, parents, tell me, do, do your kids know your phone number? Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I mean, I'm the same with knowing less numbers. I do know all the key numbers that I need to know. Like, I know my parents and I know my partners and I've learned them off by heart for exactly that reason. So that, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, parents, please let us know because we're childless millennials here. But yeah. So, so okay. So we covered like social media platforms and the devices themselves. What about the internet? All right. <laughs> that has nothing to do with uh, Facebook. Like, what about the consumption of content? Yeah. Should we talk about... Should we talk about Peppa Pig? Yeah, let's let's have a tiny segue. Well, we were already talking about uh, when we were kids, blah, blah, blah. When I was a kid, the moral panic, and this was like in the 90s, early 90s, was television. And it was like, people are using television as their nannies, and television is not the nanny. And shortly after that in my life, the moral panic shifted to uh, video games. But it was always the same premise of parents using technology and devices as a step in for entertaining and or raising their kids which also extra side note this also has a heavy intersection with uh, class studies have shown that people like parents who 
need to be out of the house more to work more don't have that much quality time with their kids right so what's the device that will keep them inside the house safe and away from the streets is the tv is the video game is the internet so it's just you know i want to recognize that that's also another element another layered element of use of technology that um, influences everything that we're saying but yes tell me moral panic peppa pig let's give this thing to the kid what is it i am you know what i'm so glad you said that intro and framed it that way because everything i'm about to say i am so afraid that i am just falling prey to a moral panic so with that intro there's this thing that's going on with peppa pig which is a animated children's cartoon for little wee toddlers with a anthropomorphic pig and her friends. Uh, it's very, very popular. Sounds like Nine Inch Nails wrote the thing. An anthropomorphic pig <laughs> and his friends. Like Trent Reznor, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, but go on. So it's super popular and yeah, toddlers love it. My little niece loves it. It's great. But if you watch it on YouTube, where loads of these videos are, and YouTube has a little like automated next video that comes up or it has recommended similar videos. And there are other videos that look like they have Peppa Pig videos and look very similar and they start and they have some of the same sounds. But they have other weird things in them, just like disturbing things that have been described, like Peppa Pig goes to the dentist and then the dentist transforms into a monster and then like blood is pouring out of her teeth and really strange things like that, which people are saying are created by bots, automatingly producing these out of like a mash of different animated content. And so there'll also be a mash of all the things that children like. So there are like automated titles that say things like Anna, Elson, Frozen, Cloning, Joker, Spider-Man, Hammer. And then the video is like a mash of those things. Just a weird, confusing jumble of stuff. And it's made because that's how you make money, right? The toddler market is huge as all of these parents all across the world. The research was saying like, it's huge in India. Tons and tons of kids are watching these Peppa Pig videos there in America, in the UK, in Europe, in Australia. All of these countries are watching these same videos. So you get the little like preview ads, you get the ads in the middle, you get the ads at the end. You get toddlers mm-hmm. re-watching those videos over and over again because they like to repeat things. So you yeah. get the ad revenue from all of that. So yeah. just creating videos that toddlers watch makes a ton of cash. There is a fantastic article that I'm sure a lot of you listeners have read. Um, it's called Something is Wrong on the Internet by, what's his name? James Brittle, Bridle, JB. And basically it's a long-ish read, like 15 minutes or so, 20. And it's amazing as in, it goes in depth. This was, I think, written last year. It goes in depth into the world of YouTube animated videos for kids. Not only Peppa Pig, but I think he goes into other kinds and tries to figure out this weird world of, um, you know, like you said, bot-generated videos, but also there's entire companies with like six to 12 people acting out the things that the search terms have shown to be profitable. For example, like if you basically the string of words that you just said, like Peppa Pig, dentist, colorful, learning, nursery rhyme dog you will have actors dressed in terrible costumes because he also mentions the production value is very low be it in animation or live action because it's kids watching right so they create these videos uh the second key to that is like first key was like all of the words that have to be there second is length apparently the longer the video the better 
because these videos are used as, as long-term entertainment for kids. So videos that are like 40 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half long of just Peppa Pig. You know, you can just leave the kid with a tablet and let it do its thing. And the autoplay feature of YouTube just adds all the sauce because then the kid can just continue to watch and watch and watch. And there's billions of of views in, in these videos. Sometimes people say even bots are watching videos just to auto-generate the revenue. So yeah, I think it is strange. It is the weirdest thing. People check out that article, it's amazing. But yeah, why why is this so weird? It's a capitalist mining system of like, let's get their attention, let's make them rewatch things as much as possible, as cheaply produced as possible. And it's, I mean, essentially it's actually just like, using the YouTube algorithm and gaming it to mm -hmm. make as much cash as possible. Yeah. I mean, the guy who wrote the article says that YouTube and Google are completely complicit in that system because they're also making money from it. You know, it's the ad yeah. system that they make money from, the people who create the videos make money from, so they're happy with this system. But, like, I also really like this point that you made about, like, is it a moral panic? How much are kids watching creepy automated videos how bad is it there's a part of me that always wants to kind of pull back a little bit on freaking out about like what the kids are doing because just like you said you know with computer games i remember my parents didn't want me to own a console and thought it was really bad and i remember my dad being like oh like video games cause violence which some people used to think in the 90s probably some people still do and yeah i'm one perfectly fine Two, I play them at my friends' houses. Three, I love computer games. Play them all the time. Totally okay. So is this a thing where we're just like looking down and freaking out? I don't know. Yeah, I think it is very easy, like any other moral panic, to offload the responsibility to the technology. But really, half of the time, we're just panicking about a gap in something that's not so much technological as it is, I would guess, emotional and social, which is how do you raise your kids? Like, this is the new environment, one that's highly teched environment. And I don't know, I, I was just thinking, like, these are just other things that you'll have to teach your younglings to to handle the exact same recipe that they used to have with uh, TV and video games. Sit with your kids, talk to them about it, walk them through technology and trust that the lessons, some of those lessons will stick. I, I guess think you mentioned you mentioned something about in one of the things that you you quoted on the research about uh, Googling with your kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's hard with babies and like, I mean, literally the stuff that's for one year olds. But yeah, I was really enjoying a different podcast. So it's going to get a free shout out to a podcast called Nevertheless, which is about education. It's about education and technology. And they had an episode called The First Click, which also talks about these Peppa Pig videos. And it talked about how what's really exciting about technology is that kids don't need to learn a ton of facts. Like, you don't need to tell them things that they have to remember forever because the answers are there on Google. And instead of freaking out about that and saying like, oh, but they're learning differently, oh no, teach them how to research. Say, they ask you a question, you don't know the answer, you say, I'm going to look on Google for that. Or I'm going to look on DuckDuckGo or whatever, like I'm giving out <laughs> Google way too many free advertisements Bing. right now. On the search <laughs> engine of the future. And then you say, here, here I am searching and this is how I make the decision about which links to click on and which ones I'm skipping over. How am I assessing whether or not I trust this? And you just kind of talk it through. And 
basically teach our kids research skills and I thought that that was like a really nice point and the whole thing about learning together and admitting you don't know something but that you do know how to find out the answers I thought that was really nice and that's super important because um, reminds me of this other point that the article titled something is wrong on the internet says at the end which is that article was about Peppa Pig and kids videos and YouTube kids right but replace that with say nationalism and the mechanism is the same people who are banking on what are the search words the autoplay feature the bot generated stuff and the awareness that there is a sector of the population that by either age um, or other circumstance are unable to discern fact from fiction or at least you know sanctioned videos from completely unsanctioned so this whole idea of of um, sitting with your kids and and teaching them how to discern you know what's going on in front of them it's so important I, I don't yeah like I don't even think I got it when I was a kid I mean of course I I grew up in a very different environment uh, technologically speaking but you know you were I was taught to like trust the books you know if you have a question go to the library go to the encyclopedia <laughs> and Encarta was a thing um, but now I'm just like holy crap if I find it on Wikipedia it might not be true, you know, like how you check the things that you were trained to believe were sources like news and newspapers, you know, it's um, so it's fascinating. I think that's the thing, like, it's not just about your children having to gain new skills, it's that you have to gain new skills. You have to gain the skills in teaching and in assessing quality and how to explain how to do that. Like, yeah, my parents were just the same. We had a massive encyclopedia. And then they would just be like, let's look it up in the encyclopedia together. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, parenthood. I don't know. Parents, I don't know how you do it. Sounds hard. Good for you. It sounds hard. Good on you. <laughs> Good on you. Should we talk about web filters? Go. All right. So, I'm going to link this into a whole bunch of work that I did in a previous job, actually. And... Let's see, how to start off explaining this. So a few years ago in the UK, we got this national network level filter on the internet, which is basically that when you install an internet connection, you get like an automatic adult content filter on it. And you have to opt out of that if you really want to. And it's a little hard to opt out of it. It's, 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 you know, it's an option, but it's not an option that's pushed at you. The idea is that, like, you automatically have this network-level safe version of the internet. Mm. And, again, like, maybe that sounds really good, you know, sure, we will want, like, an internet that children can feel happy on. Great. Except, one of the things that I worked on when I worked at Open Rights Group was this thing called the Blocked Project, which is a website you can go to. Uh, I think it's block.org.uk and you can look up any website and see if it is or isn't blocked on that network level filter and what we found is that there are many things that are blocked that you would not think are unsuitable for children or in fact should be suitable for children so a lot of it is things that are related to things more people would call controversial like mm. mental health support or sites related Sex. to sex pretty much sex education pub websites just homosexuality and gender i bet yep yep tons of stuff like that i mean there was an initial thing where the bt full list of everything bt was blocking literally included 
gay as like a filter for things that they were not going to include in things wow. not suitable for under 18s because nobody's wow. gay until they're 18 what no i'm shouting down the podcast i apologize um <laughs> <laughs> too loud too loud that was kind of ridiculous um yeah we built this tool to help people find out what is and isn't blocked and we did a lot of research and we found for instance that a lot of charity websites were being blocked because they deal with support and social services and that kind of thing so the it's good for the children framing actually mm-hmm. cuts off access to things that children really need to have access to i mean it reminds me a lot also of what's happening on youtube uh banning gay and trans content it's the exact same premise. It's like, this is not suitable for children, so we'll demonetize you or not show you whenever someone's Googling, you know, trans yeah. or gender or whatever. This is not suitable for children. I'm like, well, this Peppa Pig being killed by a dentist is. Like, what the hell? What is it? And who are you to decide what's suitable for kids? Yeah, it's this thing, like, I understand, again, like, the concept of having a safe search or like some filters for porn sure is the fact that what is deemed adult content we were told that it would be for porn but as soon as you say this is going to be for porn and then they're like well well, we're at it let's just let's just add in all of this other stuff it's it's never just the one thing it's like we've built the capabilities i mean what i was always scared of is that this didn't happen via legislation, via law, it happened with an agreement with a bunch of internet service providers and the government meeting and deciding to do this. And it's like, if they can just decide to do that, what else can they just decide to filter? You know, it doesn't need a law to say we're going to create this automated filter. And we're just Mm -hmm. all cool with it. Because once again, it is the think of the children frame that allows Mm -hmm. us to make so many things happen yeah and there was a an article by um this researcher mariel garcia montes and we have a quote here kind of talks about that about advocacy for like children online and all of these frames that people use to like push policy but it's like well the quote says Youth and child rights organizations seem to advocate for stronger regulation and law enforcement capacities to keep minors safe online, while digital rights organizations pointed out at the ways this infrastructure could be used to silence dissent and harm activists. So again, it it is about this weird thing of like, but do it for the children, and then digital rights people are like, you're setting up an infrastructure of surveillance, no! Um, Yeah, but what I found really interesting about her research is that what I felt she was saying was that they're not actually talking about what young people need because digital rights organizations, including ourselves, like I really think about this a lot. We're talking about like the way this will harm activists, this way this will harm adults who are like, why should there be a now clever filter? There are more adults than there are children. But Mm -hmm. I did feel like we were dismissing a lot of serious concerns about online abuse and there are real dangers online. And Mm -hmm. I felt like there was this point and we were saying like, well, adults' concerns are more important, so we're not going to worry about the children. And the children's rights groups were saying like, well, we're concerned about the children, so who cares about the adults? But I don't know were any of us consulting young people were any young people were any teenagers consulted in that process because honestly we weren't doing that 
we talked to adults who talked about their experiences of online abuse, but that's still like a memory. And mm. I feel like everything is still about like we know best, but we're not really giving teenagers a voice in the policy around online filtering. Well, and I keep coming back to this whole idea of like we want to push like technocratic solutions to social problems, which is kind of like it's that's the the problem, right? Technology might mitigate some of those problems, but it is it is not going to solve them. Like web filters will not prevent a kid to look up porn if they want to because they're 13 or whatever. Like it's just not going to happen. And the big gap that's there is that, well, why is the kid having to hide to find this? Like, why isn't there any, you know, what are we... It's just like the, the whole Black Mirror thing, right? What are we blocking out of the kid's view that would have been better managed alongside an adult? Or, like, letting the kid... And I, I recognize we're using the term kid to see to go from anywhere from, like, child monitors, like three-year-olds to like teenagers but you know it's this whole idea of at some point you have to talk to your children people yeah i mean <laughs> like you have to walk them through the world yourself it's like that whole argument is how am i gonna explain to my kid that two women can love i'm like i don't know fucking talk to the kid i'm just <laughs> not my problem well it is it will become my problem if you don't do that so talk to them before i talk to them um <laughs> <laughs> Before Marinella goes around the world <laughs> explaining lesbians to it's all part children. Of my agenda. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Good point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I always end up turning this to the game. <sighs> yeah, I was gonna say the point that you made that we're doing, we're using the word kid a little bit freely. I think it's also kind of a problem, though, in general, is that the think of the children is think of the, you know, maybe they're two and maybe they're 15 children. Like, actually, different solutions, different filtering and conversations just need to happen at different points. Mm -hmm. You can't have the same conversation with a three-year-old that you have with a 15-year-old. Like, we know that. And I think there just needs to be some of these things, like, you can have filters for, like, your pretends, but then maybe there's a point where you say, like, you know, they're growing up and it's time to let them make some choices of their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So should we just keep kids away from the internet at all? <laughs> no, no. There are many good things, though. I think this is actually actually the thing that I realize how much I struggle with is on the one hand being really aware of like so many negative things that we've talked about about surveillance and just like douchebags on the internet and at the same time not wanting to be that person who's like technology is bad and everything is awful on the internet because at the end of the day technology has produced a lot of great things and it has you know made this podcast and allowed me to become obsessed with podcasts in general and learn loads of things and read research it's all great and I think children do need to be allowed those same opportunities to learn and discover things it's just like we also need to be aware of what's happening mm -hmm. I think our younglings the next generation you young people I know they, they deserve better from us the second you start treating kids as sentient beings i think the scenario changes because instead of making decisions for them you start adjusting the you know this way of mediating the world not even mediating but just like walking alongside them to be there as a support and as a guide to to understand the ever-changing world like 
that's part of and I'm and I know I know we're talking about parenting, but we're not just talking about fathers and mothers to kids. I mean, we all, if we're doing our social duty right, we're all in in the business of parenting the next generation. Everything that we produce, everything, the way you walk down the street, let's take it back to the gay. If you walk down the street looking like yourself and you are able to, because a lot of people can't, there's a kid that's going to go and look at that and be like, oh, cool, like that's an option. So the way you behave yourself, we're all in the business of parenting the next generation and the current generation because they're also in the world right now. So I think I like to think of that as a way to to think about my responsibility towards anyone who needs raising and also my expectation sort of because I'm I mean I'm young but I'm not that young but I've been very lucky to have some people who do perform some sort of guidance role at many levels and that's what I've gotten from them it's not so much the I'm gonna make the decision for you it's like here this is what I know take it and you know I'm here if you need me which is exactly what I think I would love to do if I ever had you know to raise a kid yeah that was really lovely that's nice yep Um, Cool. Is there anything else? I feel like, honestly, I feel like we covered a lot of important things. I had this one sort of lingering question, which I'm wondering what your point of view on it is. Is this question like, are children a marginalized group? Because I was reading some research, as I mentioned, by um, Carly Neist. And she's had this line in it that she said, children experience more serious threats to their privacy from a greater range of actors than any other group. And my reaction was like, what? Surely not, you know? What What about activists? You know, what about people who are... Like, what about Muslims who are being surveilled by, by oppressive governments who, you know, think they're all terrorists? And then I was like, well, hmm. You know, I guess they have parents, teachers, librarians, the internet. Like, maybe yeah. that is true. Are, are they like an oppressed group? I don't know. What do you think? This is where intersectionality comes in. I think if you define marginalized in terms of power and who has power over what and over who and agency, then of course kids don't have as much power as an adult. And then you look at the intersections that a kid has to face, like we already mentioned briefly, uh, the class intersection and so, well, basically socioeconomic class. You know, it's not the same an immigrant, brown, Mexican immigrant kid without papers in the States has a very different uh, environment than a black kid, than uh, a white kid, than a disabled kid. Um, the thing that they have in common, I mean, one of the many things they have in common is that they depend upon others, upon us as adults, as parents, but also as society, to make an environment for them to grow to their full potential in theory. Um, and I think it's that dependency. It's, it's our obligation but to, to provide that environment, but they I mean, they're kids, <laughs> like they, they're learning, their brains are forming, their bodies are growing. It's they need us, right? So yeah, in terms of power dynamics, in terms of, of, of agency, yes, they are at a disadvantage. I would not put them on the same. It's a very different kind of uh, powerlessness. Hmm. And again, it's heavily influenced by all of those other intersections that we always mention. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I guess, there's no simple yes, no answer, but it's, yeah, think of it in terms of power, and for me, makes things a little bit more clear. Yeah, I think you're right, because I was thinking about consent again, which is obviously how I like to think about everything, and I was like, how, we we actually say that legally, 
children can't consent, right? I mean, that's that's a mm-hmm. very important thing. And I think that, therefore, because they can't consent, it's also important to remember, like, how many choices we make about them for them, you know, and just to be, like, really conscious of the kind of power that we hold. And that they are actually human beings. And I think a lot of the time, young people are treated as though they're in some kind of separate class, but they have the same human rights. They they they, they do. There's not, like, a subset of human rights. It's just human mm. rights. And that actually does cover people pre-18 or 16 or 21 because ultimately the definition of a child isn't even the same everywhere. So it's always just people. It's a difference between don't track your kids, rather create an environment where your kid is comfortable enough to come to you should they need guidance or have questions. Way easier said than done. Yeah. But, you know, the tyranny of convenience will win. <laughs> it's easier to put a GPS tracker than to talk to your kid. So that was a Team Wu thing again. All right, shall we wrap up? Yeah, I think so. Lots to think about. This was really interesting. Lots to think about. Awesome. What What are you taking with you, Ruth? I mean, I think that stuff that you just said, that was the... You know, we all have responsibility for raising young people, for raising the children in our areas, and that, like, it's up to us to help create an environment that young people can grow up in and safe to be themselves. It's really inspiring, and to remember that, like, even if you don't have children, you interact with them, and, like, that is a responsibility to take seriously, I think is really inspiring. So thank you. What about you? What are you taking away? I mean, this is not about object permanence, but <laughs> but just to think about children as a marginalized group. Like, I think I never put those two things together. I mean, of course, I thought about that as a disadvantaged sort of thing. Um, I never thought of that as something... I often think, say, like, when we talk about age, I think about older people, seniors. Uh, people with some sort of like chronic disability that are really dependent on other people you know in relation to age but never the other way around and because this society also takes youth as like the ultimate awesome thing so it's it's interesting just to be like oh it's really hard being a kid (laughs) um don't you ever forget that it was it was a very interesting episode for me yeah good times now i now i just have to um go back to thinking about the new doctor who episode that's 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 what's exciting in my life right now well i watched um oceans 8 yesterday again so that's um yeah (laughs) so basically three that's why all the all the gay stuff is in my head still yes i was just gonna say like yes for 2018 and female heroes everywhere yes (laughs) all right ruth uh it was a pleasure thank you so much thank you listeners uh if you want the footnotes theintersectionofthings.com if you want twitter where did they go at things intersect and also you can email us with that too with your thoughts uh, thingsintersect at gmail.com and if you want Ruth and everything she tweets and writes about they go to nescient that's at n-e-s-i-e-n-t on twitter and if you want me where are you good luck (laughs) (laughs) undazed and such on twitter be kind and nice also you could leave us a review if you are into that you know it'd be good we'd appreciate it and we're on spotify now yes just just share us on your instagram stories uh just because i love those things and yeah just thank you so much for listening for your time for all of your attention for being so lovely thank you ruth i'll see you next i'll see you next time. time bye bye